Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 4 Entering the Art Room. Just what do you think you're doing? This was one of my mother's signature phrases. At home, she said this upon discovering me or Patrick engaging in or about to engage in something dangerous, unacceptable, or forbidden. Her earliest use of it that I can remember came right in the middle of a jubilant spree when Patrick was two that featured both of us emptying all of my mom's records from their sleeves and flinging them around our tiny apartment like frisbees until most of the floor was covered with the music of Sam Cooke the Temptations, and Wilson Pickett, some of it in shapes that were no longer part of a circular hole. Having accomplished this, we proceeded to climb up onto the stereo cabinet and dance around on the plastic dust cover of her Pioneer record player, eventually shattering that too. Just what do you think you're doing? She didn't so much yell it as declare it with a descending stair-step emphasis that landed right in the middle of whatever you were up to with a biblical authority, not just stopping us, but freezing us in place, making Patrick and me very aware that our desecration of her stacks and Motown catalog had stirred almighty and supreme forces capable of crushing us if deployed to their fullest extent. From that moment forward, just what do you think you're doing became maybe the most powerful utterance in my mom's arsenal of parental jargon and catchphrases. The fact that she was saying it now to R.J. Lefferts and Chris Dilfer spelled certain doom. Just what do you think you're doing? My mom repeated. R.J. and Chris were frozen on the front steps of the school, petrified. I'm waiting, she escalated, not really waiting at all. Mom had parked our blood-red Ford Aerostar at the very west end of the school parking lot, so I wouldn't have to walk too far on the first day. But as we were about to go our separate ways, she noticed something happening in front of the junior high that immediately changed her course, and instead of going to her classroom in the high school, she hurried toward the flagpole, arriving on the front steps in the middle of my entire group of friends before I did. I don't know. R.J. grumbled, barely audible. Yes, you do, my mom continued. You were snapping her bra. I saw you snapping her bra from down the sidewalk. She was motioning to Christy Carnero with one hand while continuing to point the index finger of her other hand at R.J. and Chris. I had seen it too. Chris had done it first, a couple of times, which Christy had nervously ignored. When R.J. followed that up with a much more vicious snap, Christy turned on him and yelled for him to stop it. Now her stance on the steps was a boiling mix of rage and embarrassment, crossed arms, downturned eyes nearing tearfall. Are you okay, dear? Christy nodded her head without looking up. 
As my mom gently touched her shoulder, the rest of the Eagle Girls closed ranks. Does she look okay, RJ? Jill shouted. She had both hands on her hips and was seething. My mom turned in RJ and Chris's direction. That's a good question, she agreed. Here's another question I have. What makes either of you think it's okay to touch her without her permission? What? Both of them stumbled, looking bewildered. I think you two heard exactly what I said. Now it was Chris and RJ's turn to be embarrassed as my mom refused to let it go and all the other guys slowly backed away, still staring at them, probably silently thanking whatever god they acknowledged for sparing them from my mother's unrelenting scrutiny. It's not okay, RJ murmured. Correct, it's not. How would you feel if somebody came up to you out of nowhere and started yanking on your underwear? Both of them hung their heads lower. Dead silence. I asked you a question, my mom pressed, lowering and slowing down her voice. How would you feel if somebody did that to you? There was no answer forthcoming, just RJ and Chris looking around at all of us looking at them while my mom stood in the middle, surveying the flabbergasted group to make sure we all understood what had gone down. The conspicuous stillness of all these newly minted teenagers on the steps slowed down other students going in, turning heads, and setting off multiple channels of hushed conjecture that lasted the rest of the day. Why don't the three of us take a walk up to the office, my mom suggested to Chris and RJ, and the three of them disappeared through the front doors as the crowd dispersed. I turned back toward Christy one more time before I left to go find my locker, she and Joe Neal were sitting side by side on one of the long concrete ledges framing the steps, with Jill, Angie, and Lisa insulating them from any further outside contact. Joe Neal's left arm protected Christie's shoulders, and her right was folded around her front, holding her hand. Jill was leaning in on Christie's left, and Lisa was behind, pulling her hair back out of her eyes. Angie stood guard on the ledge, a sentinel scouring the area for any other aggressors. None of them were in a hurry to get to class. Until junior high, I had only taken two art classes in my life for a grand total of five days. One was part of the preschool program at a museum called the Science Center when I was four and we lived in Des Moines. It was a nightmarish experience where I was only allowed to paint with garish magenta tempera by a frightening and alarmingly angular lady in a huge white smock who got blustery and upset and whose face actually turned almost magenta when I wanted to use different colors and told me if I wasn't willing to follow directions, I wouldn't get to paint at all. The second day, I purposely ravaged my magenta house with blues and greens and yellows that I took from a supply cabinet when she wasn't watching. When she discovered my transgression with the off-limits tempera, she took away my brush and made me sit by myself and draw with a pencil, which didn't even feel like punishment to me. It felt great. The other was three once-weekly art lessons at the home of a woman who lived in Lincoln. Her studio was in a converted bedroom, but it looked more like a greenhouse because every square inch of available space not occupied by art supplies was taken up by large unruly ferns and wild spreading vines that she referred to as her babies. She never asked me what I wanted to make. 
Instead, she made me cut magazine photographs in half and try to replicate the missing side in charcoal. The scratching and scraping of the charcoal sticks on the paper was bad enough, but combined with her coffee-soaked breath, which engulfed the whole drawing desk because she spent the whole hour leaning in so close over my shoulder that it went directly into my nostrils, they made the lessons a real drag. Finally, at the third lesson, I asked if we could do something different like paint outside with watercolors, and she pulled back off my neck and let out an offended coffee breath huff and said, If you don't want to work on the basics, I can't help you. I never went back to either of them. So when I walked into the junior high art room for the first time at the end of the day, I had already resigned myself to a semester of monotonous exercises and uninteresting projects doled out by a weary and upset adult who just wanted to be doing something else. The art room itself promised nothing different. It was a long, colorless rectangle in the basement of the building with grungy overhead rectangle fluorescent lights dim enough that you could stare straight at them but somehow end up hurting your eyes just the same. If you looked closely at them, you noticed that their life-sucking lumens were filtered by a grimy screen of unidentifiable crud floating inside the plastic covers. Was it dirt? Was it bugs? Impossible to say. This spectacularly dreadful lighting commingled with a wall-to-wall -wall layer of chalky pastel film and white drywall dust that evenly covered cabinets, tables, chairs, and the floor, completing the whole nuclear winter vibe. It really sent a clear message that Waverly Junior High wanted its students to learn to draw and paint in a soulless subterranean chamber devoid of hope. Walking into it gave me an anxious feeling that getting white dust all over my clothes was inevitable and that I would emerge from art class at the end of every day looking like a powdered donut as I had to walk through halls of high schoolers to get to my mom's room. As I hunted around for somewhere to sit, I wondered if the amount of dust in there would cause me to choke to death if I breathed too deeply. The only thing less enthusiastic than the environment of the art room was Mr. Lauderdale, the art teacher. Albert Lauderdale was in his mid-forties and was tall, dark, and handsome, but exceedingly tired. He had a somewhat haphazardly combed shock of dark brown hair that reminded me of old photographs I'd seen of artists in Paris at the turn of the century. The reckless and exhausted look of someone so driven to pursue their art that simple things like combing your hair or eating fall by the wayside. His mustache was a dark brush stroke across his lip that conspired with his wry smirk and large, somber eyes to paint a portrait of sad consternation. He looked like if Edgar Allan Poe and Modigliani had had a really, really tired baby. Welcome to visual art, Lauderdale groused, exuding all the excitement of a pallbearer. I took a seat in the absolute furthest chair in the back row. In this class, you will study light, color, shading, value, and lines, and ultimately, you will learn to draw, he intoned without radiating the smallest shred of belief in his own words. For some of you, this might take a while, but really, what else do we have besides time? Do we get to paint? asked a small kid in the front. Quiet, Lauderdale grumbled. In order to paint, you have to be able to draw. 
And since learning to draw will take at least until Christmas, I don't expect anybody to be painting until the spring. The kid wilted and slid down into his chair. I smiled and chuckled a little under my breath. In this class, I only have one rule, sighed Lauderdale. Actually, it's more of a desperate request than a rule, since I really can't force you to comply with anything, and it's entirely up to you whether you're going to follow instructions. But here it is. He looked like he was going to punch one of us. Don't make mud. What does that mean? asked Graham Snyder, another small kid in the front wearing an acid wash jean jacket two sizes too big and who specialized in encouraging mayhem in the halls during passing and not getting caught for any of it. Quiet, Mr. Snyder, griped Lauderdale. I'm about to explain it to you, not that you care. Don't make mud means this. From the primary colors of red, yellow, and blue, we get the secondaries of orange, green, and purple. But then you have to know what you're doing. You have to be careful, and you have to give it some thought. So don't just mix purple and orange, or you'll have mud. Don't mindlessly mix orange and green, or you will have mud. Purple and green will also give you mud. You might think it's funny to pour some black into some red, but it's not. It's mud. Don't make mud. There are times when you can actually hear the wind blowing through the bewildering chasm that separates an adult from a child. My point is, if we don't start with some basics, you'll just make mud all day long on every sheet of paper I give you, he continued. And since I want each of you to produce something that I won't have anxiety about hanging in the display case in the hallway or showing your parents at conferences, we need to start with the basics. Graham Snyder was staring back at Mr. Lauderdale with his chapped lips hanging open and his arms limp at his sides. Some other kids in the class were looking around as though they might actually be hoping for their parents to arrive early somehow and pick them up. Or maybe they were imagining how realistic the chances of escape into the parking lot through one of the bay windows were. Whatever the case, we were all realizing that art class was a deadly serious enterprise. In essence, all I want is to help you not make mud. I noticed that as he talked, Lauderdale continuously jiggled a piece of yellow chalk in his right hand. Left hand in pants pocket, right hand jiggling the chalk. He didn't even write anything on the board with it, just paced in front of us jiggling it at crotch level, possibly sending us a thinly veiled message about his hopes for the class. You will notice, he carped, that I have set up our first drawing exercise over here to my right. He made a sweeping motion with his right arm, still jiggling. Yeah, why do you have a ball of wood just sitting under a light? Needled Graham, coming to life, sniffing a prime opportunity to disrupt something. It's not a ball of wood, Mr. Snyder, sneered Lauderdale, turning his eyes to the ceiling in a silent plea for a boulder to drop or fire from the heavens to blaze down in an all-consuming inferno. I have placed this spherical solid under the light so you can see how light affects the objects we look at. Understanding how light behaves on a given surface is the key to drawing or painting anything with any degree of skill. So let's see where we're at. He looked utterly bereft of hope. 
Lauderdale moved through our long rows, passing out sheets of sketch paper and drawing pencils, which I was happy to get. The paper had weight and a thickness that was almost warm in my hands, unlike the sheets of typing paper I was used to drawing on at home. The pencils he gave us were Faber-Castell, the dark green kind made especially for drawing and sketching. I remembered seeing them in an art store one time and salivating over them even as I noted that they were way too expensive to ask my mom for. I turned my paper over and marked a few lines of varying widths and hardnesses and softnesses and felt the velvety lead connect with the teeth of the sheet and slide across its terrain covering some and missing some and making my neck feel pleasant and my cheeks full with a faint violin arpeggio rising from the supple and soothing scratch-scratch of each stroke. I turned my paper over, eyed the display up front, and went to work trying to render it as best I could. Lauderdale meandered in between the long tables and through the trenches of toiling students, observing over their shoulders and offering a variety of responses, none of them very cordial. Crap. Crap, he muttered. Close. Crap. Approaching acceptable. He made a considerably longer stop at Graham Snyder's seat. Turn your paper over and start again, Mr. Snyder. Why? Graham asked. It's better to, trust me, Lauderdale replied and continued on to the next row. Crap. Crap. Okay. Crap. I could hear these heartless assessments come tumbling onto the heads of the other kids, but I didn't really care. The pleasure of drawing and my drive for perfection, both hardwired into my hand and inseparable, washed over me, and I was swimming. Until I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned and looked up to see Lauderdale looking from me to my paper and back to me. He was about the same size as my dad. Come with me he said. I followed him to his desk, which was almost completely hidden from the rest of the class behind the remnant of a wall that had been knocked out to expose an adjacent room and lengthen the original one. From where we sat, it looked like a dirty white proscenium framing a cluttered stage filled with shelves, supplies, and other stuff that was clearly off-limits to us. Lauderdale sat down behind his desk, and I stood in front of it. Looking back into the classroom part, I realized no one could see him from there. You're good, he breathed out, looking right at me. How do you mean? I asked. I mean you're very talented. You're beyond this basic stuff. It's a waste of your time. I'd never had the audacity to say such a thing out loud, even though I had thought it many times. Thanks. So the real question is, what do you want to do? Until he said it, it had never occurred to me that nobody had really asked me that question, about art or much else. Um, well, I stammered. I think I might like to try watercolors. Lauderdale raised his eyebrows and nodded. Have you ever painted in watercolor before? He asked. Not really, I lied, omitting anything about my watercolor fanaticism over the summer. Just messing around a little bit here and there. It's a challenging medium, he continued. Very difficult to control. A lot of unexpected things can happen between the paint and the water.
Lauderdale's previously dead eyes had come to life, their almost mischievous glow illuminating something approaching a smile. I'm not trying to scare you, he reassured me. I just want you to know what you're getting yourself into. I nodded silently, not letting on that I already had some idea. He reclined back and twisted toward an enormous dark forest green athletic locker behind his desk that was covered in paint splatters and streaks of dried clays and various epoxies. After a few seconds of rummaging through stacks of paper and supplies as disheveled and unkempt as his hair, Lauderdale produced two watercolor paintings, one in each of his enormous hands. Did you paint those? I marveled, my eyes popping. One was of a father and a daughter playing on the floor near an old radiator. The other was a portrait of a woman looking reluctantly out of the paper. Even though they were clearly unfinished, I had never seen anything that stunning up close and in person before. Both paintings were as good or better than any of the examples from the book I had poached from Old Burner's library at the beginning of the summer. Yes, Lauderdale said. Watercolor is my medium. I continued to stare at Lauderdale's unfinished masterpieces, not saying a word. Do you notice a difference between the two? I scrutinized the painting of the father and daughter. It was crisp and clear and very lifelike, almost photographic. The painting of the woman, on the other hand, was very different. Her face seemed to emerge out of overlapping blotches of color that had no real line or form or shape. She looked like she was surfacing from beneath the water and the colors were running everywhere, into each other and off the edge of the paper in a miasma of cool blues and reddish violet that gave her face a mixed quality, a pallor that was somehow flushed with the rosiness of life. Um, the one with the father and the daughter is really detailed and more real, I weighed in. It looks real, like a photograph, but the woman looks more loose and flowy and runny. I mean, I can tell it's a woman, but it looks more dreamlike or something. Lauderdale was slowly nodding as I spoke, but I felt like I was giving the wrong answer, and I could feel the old familiar hot red itchiness beginning at the top of my ears. Each painting represents a different watercolor technique, he said. The father and daughter is done in a style called dry brush. The technique for the woman is called wet on wet. They both look amazing. Do you like one more than the other? I thought about how I'd just spent the entire summer trying to stop different colors of paint from spilling over and bleeding into each other with zero success, each attempt a new and novel failure. I sort of like the dry brush one a little more, I said. That's actually my favorite too, Lauderdale admitted. It takes a lot of patience, but I like the feeling of being able to control the paint a little better. The idea of controlling anything was very appealing. I'd like to learn how to do it, I said, looking him in the eye. Well, I'd like to teach you, he smiled, immediately looking like an entirely different person. Lauderdale slid out from behind his desk and guided me over to a colossal wooden drafting table sitting directly across from his hiding place. It was old and heavy and had cast iron legs and adjustment wheels on each side and was much bigger than my dad's. 
Just looking at it made me imagine that I was a famous illustrator from the 1910s who wore starched collars and colorful ties to work in a towering Chicago school-type office building and took evening walks through Oak Park while I contemplated the next whimsical cartoon or advertisement I'd draw for the Tribune or the Sun-Times. You'll sit here from now on. You'll need a surface like this if you're going to paint. I sat down on the stool and ran my hands over the expansive and smooth maple surface. This was some serious space, almost twice as wide and taller by half than the tiny desk in the corner of my room at the farm. This is big enough to handle a large painting and still give you room to mix colors and work out details to the side, Lauderdale continued. His voice suddenly had a different energy, the boldness of somebody who'd found a purpose or who'd at least been momentarily resuscitated. Tomorrow we'll get some materials together, he assured me. I nodded and noticed that Graham Snyder had wandered over from his seat in the other room. He was holding his sheet of paper. It had nothing on it. Why does Julius get to sit at his own desk all the way over here? Graham demanded. Sit down, Lauderdale snapped, adjusting the tabletop and not looking up. I rose slowly from the stool and backed away toward the mess behind me. But he gets a whole desk to himself and we have to cram into the regular tables. I was about to walk back over to my original seat, but Lauderdale swiveled around and blocked my path. He let out an impatient growl. Julius gets to sit all the way over here and have this desk all to himself because he already knows everything you'll be trying to learn in there, he barked. He's going to be doing some advanced projects, and he needs space. And if you come in here and bother him while he's trying to work, I'm going to send you to the office. Graham made a sour face, part angry, part hurt, and shuffled off, shaking his head as the bell rang. In seconds, the art room was deserted. Lauderdale turned to me and smiled. He almost looked like he was going to laugh. Sometimes you have to cut the morons off at the pass, he posited. Otherwise, they'll keep you from getting anything done. Like I said, we'll get all your supplies together tomorrow. Do you know what thumbnails are? Yeah, um, I've read a lot about animation and storyboards, I answered. I've got this book about the Disney process, and they use them to plot film sequences. So... Come to class tomorrow with two or three rough thumbnail sketches of ideas you'd like to try to paint, and we'll get started. With that, Mr. Lauderdale turned and went back behind his desk, sat down, and buried his face in his hands. As I hurried out of the art room, I heard him heave up another heavy sigh. The halls were mostly vacated by now, but there was a small gathering around my locker. The complete original lineup of the Eagle Girls had arranged themselves in the after-school emptiness like an alternative album cover waiting to be shot. Jill and Lisa were standing by the water fountain at the base of the stairs, talking to each other in an excited but low frequency. Christy and Joe Neal were on the other side of the hall playing slapjack, the volume of their laughter increasing with the harshness of their slaps. Angie was sitting cross-legged on the spotted orange-brown carpet in the middle of the hall, with her backpack on, writing something in a notebook, her face completely hidden by the thick veil of her hanging hair. As I arrived at my locker, they all closed in. Hi, I blurted to all of them, and none of them in particular. 
Four pairs of eyes focused on Christy, who looked nervously back at them. Jill gave a reassuring nod. So, um, I wanted to tell you that, um, I could see all of Christy's unease and sensitivity appear on the surface as her face started to redden. She was clasping her hands behind her back and looking down, her gaze guiding mine toward her legs, which were firmly planted but shaking a little. I wanted to tell you, she continued, that what your mom did this morning was really nice, and, um, just tell her thank you for me, okay? Your mom's a badass. A total badass, Joniel bolstered from just behind Christy. I'll tell her, I nodded. Those guys are such dicks, declared Angie, sweeping her hair out of her face and exposing her furious jade eyes that darted from the other girls to me and back, finally landing on me, daring me to explain Chris and RJ's bra snapping and possibly the bad behavior of all men everywhere from the beginning of time. It was an unrelenting look that pounded me right in the chest and demanded answers I knew I couldn't possibly conjure. They started the whole bra snapping thing last year, Jill started in, and it got really old really quick. It actually hurts, added Lisa. I don't even know why they do it. Because they're dicks, reiterated Angie. Like it isn't already uncomfortable enough. Why do they do it? Jill was now looking right at me. You're a guy, why do you guys do that stuff? Not only had I never at any time felt compelled to grab a girl's bra strap and snap it against her back, I also had so little understanding of why guys did anything considered guy stuff that I frequently wondered how much of a guy I actually was. The girls had coalesced into a semicircular tribunal and were all staring at me, unblinking, waiting for a response. I don't know, I began cautiously feeling like I was explaining something I'd never experienced. But maybe they did it because they don't know what else to do. What's that supposed to mean? Joniel shot back. Well, like, maybe they like you, but they're afraid to say it because they don't know how. And so the only thing they can think of is to reach out and snap our bras? Angie volleyed. That's so stupid. Yeah, no, you're right, I fumbled in agreement. But maybe it's like they get so mixed up around you because you're pretty and attractive and they want to be around you, but they're also afraid to say anything because they don't know what to say or how to say it. So then they just snap our bras. Jill completed my thought for me with her arms crossed and one eyebrow raised. I guess I exhaled, deflated and embarrassed. So why can't they just say, I like you? Christy asked softly instead of acting like idiots. I had no answer for that question. Everybody's eyes were back on Christy now. It's like you'd rather hurt us than say hi, she whispered. The silence after that was like the end to the side of a record, lasting longer than you realize until the needle scratch lifts you out of the lingering taste of the last note. Angie finally broke through it with an impatient groan. Ugh, I've got to go. My mom's probably out there waiting. Me too, Lisa followed, pulling away and heading up the stairs. I'll see you tomorrow. Joe Neal gently pulled at Christy's shoulder. Let's go. Make sure to tell your mom, okay? Christy reminded me as she backed away. I will. 
Jill was standing in front of me with her arms crossed, tapping the heel of her right foot against the floor. I still hadn't even gotten my bag or any of my books out of the locker. It was really cool of your mom to stand up for Christy like that, she said. The teachers in Eagle never did anything, except once when they got Lisa. It was RJ, and he did it so hard that it stung her and she started crying, so she slapped him. And then she got sent to the office for hitting him while he and the rest of those morons got to stand around laughing about it. They didn't do anything to him? Nope. But she wouldn't have done that if he didn't hurt her in the first place. Yep, Jill nodded. That's not fair, I sighed, even more embarrassed that I was a member of the club just out of sheer dumb biological luck. Jill shook her head as she hoisted her backpack onto her shoulder. Boys get away with whatever they want, she said. And we never say anything. She disappeared up the stairs, but what she'd said still hung heavy in the hallway along with the lighter, fading notes of the girl's designer imposters and love's baby soft. As I collected my things and shut my locker door, the echoed delay of overtones of guilt and embarrassment reverberating in my ears also began to die down, and I felt glad that I had a mom who spoke up, who had the right words at the right time, and who told the stories that needed to be told. That she had the approval of Jill and Christy and Joe Neal somehow made me feel warm and safe, even as it made me ever so slightly more distrustful of myself and my tribe, who traded in fictions and couldn't even speak half-truths.
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media. Sick Picnic Media.